Scripture reading this morning will be from Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. If you find that, you can stand, and I will read. First Peter 2, 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we're again grateful for all that you have spoken in your word and really just the um, host of things, Lord, that you have addressed. All of it, Lord, we know to reveal yourself and to bring us into conformity, God, with, with yourself, that we might live in a way that is true to you and that this world would see you in us. And so we again, Lord, just want to Surrender ourselves to you and to your word and to, from the very outset, God, just have a heart that is yielded and, and is willing to, to give um, our amen to all that you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, um, the last statement of the previous paragraph that we looked at last week is keep your Behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. And then the very next statement is, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So it would seem that in Peter's mind, excellent behavior before unbelievers begins with submission, submission to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. I hear from time to time that we have a lot of rules at His Hill, and um, I don't think we do, but others sometimes think we do. And on the last evening of the semester, we have a kind of a banquet together, and, and one of the things that happens is that the dishes have to be done after that banquet. And normally, the students have duties, and, and so their regular meal duty, um, breakfast, lunch, and, and dinner people that, that do the dishes, and they rotate, so not any one person is doing three meals of dishes, but one person will do breakfast, another person will do lunch, and like that. But on the last night of the banquet, all that's on hold, and we just um, allow those who got the most points, meaning they've missed duties, um, throughout the semester that they get to do dishes on the last night. And so usually John Forrest um, will stand and he will read the list of those who had the most points for the whole semester. These are discipline points, which only means that, you know, if you get a certain amount of points, four points or something, you have to do an extra duty the next week. So this is really no big deal. And so that night, John will read off and he'll say, Number one, person who got the most points, and then he'll say their name. 
And everybody just applauds, yay! <laughs> it's like they've won a big award. They get to do the dishes. And then he'll go through six or seven names, and everybody's clapping after everyone. So we're not, you know, just beating them up with the fact that they got a lot of points. One of the, we also do testimonies. Um, the students give testimonies at the end of each semester. And it was pretty funny, um, just last week before they left, um, a girl from one of the European countries stood up and she says, I come from a very liberal country. And in fact, she does, probably the most liberal of all the European countries. And she said, I don't know. She says, I'm not a liberal anymore. I am a, and she started to say conservative, and then she goes, I don't know what I am. And so we, we all laugh. And she goes, but this is something I, I've, I've come to find out about myself. She goes, his hill has a lot of rules. But she says, but I have never been more free in my life. And this is coming from a country where everything is legal. And then she comes to his hill when I think she would say in her words, very little is legal. <laughs> but she says, I've never been more free. The world looks at that and goes, how can that be? How can you be in an oppressive environment, whether it's government or whether it's an institution like slavery, and be free? Truly free. Well, the Word of God says it's because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And freedom is not about the absence of rules. And freedom is not about having power over other people's lives and, and people having no power over us. So we think that's when you've arrived, right? When you've reached such a status in society that you can basically do whatever you want and everybody else around you has to do what you say. So in other words, you don't have to submit. But everybody else has to submit. That's freedom. And the Lord says, no, it's not freedom. Freedom is only in Christ. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, when our lives are being governed by the Spirit of God, we are free people. And it has nothing to do with circumstances. So Peter starts out, and, and don't forget for a moment that he's talking to people who are under a very oppressive government. The Roman government and Nero is on the throne. Bad time to be alive. Very bad time to be alive. And he is saying to these people, submit. Submit yourselves. So let's just start with the word submit. I did a lot of reading this week and on this passage of Scripture. It is amazing how many will say this is a mutual submission. So there's everybody being submitted to each other. It means showing kindness to each other, showing deference to each other, treating others more highly than yourself. And there are plenty of scriptures that speak to those things, showing deference to each other, treating others more highly than ourselves. Lots of scriptures on that. But that is not what this word is about. In fact, the Greek word here, you don't need to remember this, but you'll think I'm smart, is hupotasso. There you go, I'm not so smart after all. Hupotasso. <laughs> And it means to come under. And it is always a word that is used in relationship to authority. 
it's always one directional. It's never two directional. It's never bilateral, it's always unilateral. This is the word that is used of the demons that were in subjection to Jesus. It's never Jesus was in subjection to the demons. It is always a one-way word. It is being under an authority. That kind of submission. This is, there's no mutuality in this word. Now that is not to say that there's, that there's no mutual submission, for example, in a marriage. Paul will talk in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says the wife has authority over her husband's body, and the husband has authority over his wife's body. There's a mutuality that's obviously there. But this is not that. This is the word that's used when Scripture says that as Christ is the head of the church, the, the, wife is, the husband is the head of his wife. This is about authority, and it's one-directional. So human institutions don't have to submit by nature to, to us. Now, we like to say in our country that's different. Government is of the people and for the people and by the people. And so our government by constitution is supposed to be submissive to the will of the people. Well, that is rare. Normally, that's not the way it works. And this is the problem that employers often have with unions, for example, right? Because the union all of a sudden becomes the boss. And the employer who started the company and hired the people no longer feels like he's in control of his own company. But it normally doesn't work that way. The boss is the boss. He has the authority. And we are to submit to that authority. To come under. To yield to. We hate it, don't we? Adam and Eve had one rule in the garden. Don't eat of that tree. And it was one rule too many. And they ate of that tree. And ever since, we have been just as rebellious as Adam and Eve. Thank you, Adam. Right? We are born rebels. We hate submission. So if we join the military, what's the first thing they teach you? Submit, <laughs> right? And so they even, you know, it used to be they called you a GI, meaning government issue. You know, you have no identity. You belong to us. Get used to it. And so it's all about learning to surrender your will, to yield your will to, a, to another authority. You better submit, because until that lesson's learned, no, we can't move forward. Everything is predicated on your ability to obey. And if you can't obey, we can't trust you. And it just stops with that. And it's because of Adam. Submit. One directional, coming under authority. Submit yourselves. I don't like that either. He could have just said submit and then just moved on. And then I maybe could have said, well, it's okay as long as I just have this outward conformity, you know, and I'm doing what's expected, but on the inside, I'm still shaking my fist, right? But he says, submit 
yourself. It's not just submit your will, but submit yourself. It gets a little deeper. Yield yourself. For the Lord's sake. Well, why do you have to bring God into it? Man. Uh, let's skip down to verse 21. For the Lord's sake. Well, what does he mean by that? Maybe this, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, and we, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. You were continually straying. See, rebellious sheep. That's what you were, a rebellious sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardians of your souls. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And when we submit ourselves to human institutions, it's not because we say those human institutions know what they're doing or because they're righteous in everything that they do. We submit to human institutions as unto the Lord. That's the point. Jesus submitted to the Mosaic law. Jesus submitted, submitted to the Roman law. And that's where they often tried to trick him up, wasn't it? We're we supposed to pay taxes. And Jesus says, yep. Well, who do we, do we honor, Caesar, or do we honor God? And they were constantly trying to trip him up on this. And we, we fall into the same thing, I know I do, of, you know, do I obey man's law or do I obey God's law? But honestly, there is seldom a conflict. Because unless government is actually ordering us to do what is untrue to God, what to, to obey government would violate God's will. Then we just obey government. That's what Peter's saying. And very seldom, I think if we're honest about it, is the government commanding us to do something that is inherently immoral. Most of the time, we just don't like what the government's saying because it may be unreasonable. It may be oppressive. It may be unjust. But it is not inherently immoral. And Jesus submitted himself because he was entrusting himself to the Lord. And he was submissive to the authorities that God, as a man, allowed to come into his life. So for the Lord's sake, because this is true of Jesus, he was not a rebel. He was not obstinate. He was not difficult. He was yielded, and he was obedient. I had a conversation with a friend of mine that I value and trust his opinion a lot, and he was telling me that, that currently in theological circles that good conservative evangelicals are saying that there is no, was no, submission in the Trinity on the part of Christ to the Father. And I find that disturbing 
And so I quoted a couple of passages, and he says, Charlie, you don't have to interpret those passages to mean that Jesus was eternally submissive to the Father, but rather that he became submissive when he became a man. Well, the thing, and I told him this, I said, the thing that troubles me about that is then we're saying that basically God is, because the guy says, now don't get me wrong, he says, I believe that a husband is the head of his wife. But, I, but that does not necessarily mean that God is the head of Jesus in the same way. And I'm thinking, well, it says that. And so just to go along with it, I said, okay, just for the sake of argument that I've been misunderstanding Scripture in the parallel that's being made between father and son and husband and wife. Just in case I'm missing that. Where did it come from? How did God say, husbands, you're the head of your wife, wives submit to your husbands? Where did that come from? He said, well, God just decided it. And I go, I have a problem with that. How can God decide something, mandate something, that is not consistent with his very nature? It had to come from somewhere. That thought that God had, had to come from somewhere. And it, like our thoughts, it comes from our nature. This is why Jesus said that, that a person speaks from his heart, from what is true to him. The mouth speaks from the heart. And when God speaks and God mandates, it comes from what is true of God. It has to come from there. God cannot think a thought that is not true to himself any more than we could. So when God mandates, God creates, and God orders, and God puts design, it is because it is all, in some measure, reflective of what is true of him. Has to be. And so it is, when we rebel... As the people of God, when we are just by nature rebellious, we are not reflecting the nature of God. And that is not to say that we are to submit in every single circumstance because God himself doesn't submit to evil. And we are not asked to submit to what is inherently evil. But we are mandated not just to submit for submission's sake, but out of the nature of God, what is true of Him. And God is not by nature rebellious, nor should we by nature be rebellious. And quite honest, some Christians are. You, you, when you look at our lives, you go, why does it seem that this person is more characterized by resistance and rebellion than by submission? That's not right. And it's not, I know we've got a sin nature, we've got God's nature, the nature of Christ within us, and we can go both ways as Christians. But if we are abiding in Christ, we should be more characterized by what is true of Christ than what is true of our sin nature. And Christ was the obedient one, the submissive one. He was absolutely yielded to his Father in everything. Everything. Pretty amazing. Every word, every action, Jesus says, in response to, in obedience to the Father. 
So when the one thing he never wanted to do was to be separated from the Father, even that, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Wow. Submission. Yieldedness. For the Lord's sake, because it is true to him. To every human institution. This is not a happy verse. Submit your being, because it's true of God, to every human institution. Whether it's Rome, whatever it might be. You know, the Jews, they had no choice about this. When, I mean, in a sense they did, but when they rebelled against the Lord and rejected the Lord back in the Old Testament, and they are sitting in captivity, and God gives a vision to Daniel, and, and Daniel is wondering how long this is going to last. Well, Jeremiah said, well, the captivity itself is going to last for 70 years. Well, good. But the vision that God gave to Daniel says, but I want to let you know, you're going to go back home. The people of Israel are going to be allowed to go back home in 70 years. But there's something you need to understand. This oppression by the Gentiles, which began with Babylonian oppression, I got news for you, Daniel. That's not going to go away anytime soon. In fact, when the Babylonians are done, well, then it's going to come the Medes and the Persians. And when the Medes and Persians are done, well, then it's going to come the Greeks. And when the Greeks are done beating up on you, then it's going to come the Romans. And there's a sense in which the Romans are still going to be in charge until Jesus comes back and establishes his own kingdom. And so for the rest of the time, until Jesus' kingdom is established on earth, Israel is going to be under Gentile dominion. That's what Daniel is told. Now, there have been through history a number of times that the, that the Jews have said, uh-uh, we are not going to submit. You talk about futility. Because God has already said, you're going to be under Gentile dominion. You're still a nation, but you are not going to have the freedom that you want to have. Because again, that freedom is only in Christ. And they've rejected him. And until they receive him, they are not going to have the freedom that they want to have as a nation. And so we had the Maccabees. And they rose up against the Romans and did a pretty good job. But they all ended up dying down in Masada. So there's a Masada fortress where they ended up having their last stand. And they were all, would have been killed, but they took their own lives to keep from being killed. Futile. And then in the more recent um, history of Israel, during the days of Jesus, they were under the Roman occupation again, and they had, they had allowed... The Roman, they had resisted the Romans so much they had had a concession made that they did not have to worship Caesar. But still, they're under Roman oppression. Not nice people. And the Lord says, it's for your discipline. Submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether to a king as one in authority, or to the 
agents of the king, governors, as sent by him. Submit yourself. Now, ever so, I forget what time of year it is, spring or something, we, we get property um, tax assessment notices in the mail. Don't you love those days? Happy day, you know, county's going to tell me how much they're going to tax our properties on for. Well, ever so often, I, like you, I, I open up the letter and I go, you've got to be kidding me, Right? How in the world did my property rise in value that much since last year? And, it, and, and so there's been several times I've gone down to protest. And I've sat with the tax assessor and made my case. And sometimes they've been agreeable and said, yeah, you know, we see your point. And, and sometimes they haven't been. And so then they have another step that you can go through. And the next step is, if you don't agree with the, with, the, with the tax assessor after you've had your little meeting, then you can go before a citizen's court. And the tax assessor will sit there, and you sit there, and you can present your case before the citizen's court. That's all fine. There's, there is nothing unbiblical about protesting your taxes and even not being in agreement with, the, with what the assess, assessor says and going to the citizen's court. That is all part of the legal system. Now, what would be wrong would be to go into the place and start shooting it up or to burn it to the ground. We can't do that. But we can operate within the laws that have been established. And where there's provision made for protest, we can take that provision. But we do so with a submissive heart. And finally, ultimately, we're going to have to do what they tell us to do. We, we can work with the system as the system would permit. He says in verse 14, he gives the purpose of government. To punish the, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. That's basically it. Now, if you've got gray hair here, you know, we, we older folks can look at this and go, amen. This is all government is supposed to do. It is supposed to, to basically be a, 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 have a, a system of justice where it punishes evildoers and it rewards good doers. And it's to make sure that that happens. That's it. And we could also add to that and to protect its citizenry from outside forces that would come in and harm them. But just going off the Bible, that's it. So the younger generation, I encounter this all the time, they go, well, no, 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 no. You know, government is also supposed to provide health care. The government is supposed to provide education. The government is supposed to even provide university education. And as I talk with especially Canadian and European students whose government gives all kinds of assistance, they think their governments are better governments because they're doing those things. And I try to tell them that's not the role of government. Now, it's, if government wants to do that, that's, they can do that. But that is not the biblical role of government. It is simply to punish evildoers and to protect and reward 
those who do good. That's it. But clearly, every government violates its biblical mandate. I've never heard of a government that does only what it was mandated by God to do. So what do you do when government's doing what it's not supposed to do? I was down at the Alamo recently with some friends, and and we sat and watched the little video that they show in the back of the property there, and it was put out by the History Channel. And it's a pretty good video. I'm no judge on how accurate it is, but by its portrayal, um, what was happening during the the days of Santa Ana and, and the fight for independence in Texas was that when Santa Ana became president of Mexico, he unilaterally abolished the Constitution of Mexico. And the, the Constitution that was in place when he became president allowed for a lot of autonomy of the different states within Mexico. And so there are a lot of American citizens and European citizens that moved to Mexico because of those laws, the Constitution of Mexico that was in place. And they came to be loyal Mexican citizens. And so they they considered themselves Mexicans. They embraced the Mexican Constitution. Well, overnight, Santa Ana says, we're going to rip up the Constitution and we're going to do something different. And that was what precipitated the rebellion, the fight for independence. So in their minds... They were saying, Santa Ana doesn't have the right to do what he did. We are not opposing government. We're opposing a man who is acting against the government. And so that's how they justified, apparently, what they did. I think with American history, it's, it's much the same. Loyal British citizens had problem with their government, that there was no due process, there was no representation, fair representation, And so they were not trying to overthrow the government, but they were objecting to specific laws that were being violated. And they said, we just want the laws to be upheld. And when they wouldn't be upheld, and finally it came to to force, they said, we have no choice here but to separate ourselves. And they felt they were acting in good conscience. Many of them God-fearing people who are seeking under great duress to do the right thing. I don't know that I can stand in judgment of them. It's hard, isn't it? Peter doesn't even go there. And I I think in the wisdom of the Lord, he has not told us when it is right to disobey and when it is not. Even the few stories that we have, we're really drawing principle off of isolated events. And we're not saying this is what the scripture says. So when Daniel refused to eat the king's food, when Daniel's friends refused to bow down to the idol, when the Egyptian midwives refused to kill the babies, again, amen. I believe those people did the right thing. But the scripture doesn't say that this is principle for every person. The principle is, for every person, submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution.
And if we're going to err on one side or the other, resisting, rebelling, or submitting, as much as we don't like it, it seems like we should err on the side of submitting rather than rebelling. Because that's where the clear teaching of God's word is. Submit. And most of the time, the areas where we're having difficulty, it's not because of something that is being commanded that is immoral. I don't like wearing seatbelts. I feel like that should be my decision. And when I'm driving around our property looking for deer, I don't like having a seatbelt on. But I don't like the ding, 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 ding. That's constant either. And so the ding makes me put the seatbelt on. Doesn't make me happy. But the government is not asking me to do something immoral. It's not asking me to do something contrary to God's word. It may seem foolish. It may be oppressive even. But it's not a violation of scripture. Verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right. And what is the right? Submitting. The right thing in most instances is to submit. For such is the will of God. That phrase actually occurs a few times, not a lot, but a few times in the New Testament. This is the will of God. This is one of those few places. And the will of God, in most instances, is to submit. And in doing so, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So most of the commentaries will say the ignorance is, they don't believe there's a God. The foolishness is, they don't believe there's a God. Okay. How many, what percentage of people don't believe there's a God? About 2%. But 98% of the world's population does believe there's a God. So I don't know if that's what Peter's saying. Those that don't believe in a God are going to be silenced when they see you being submissive. Could be. And I think what Peter's after is, what is the ignorance of the oppressive Roman government at this time. What is the ignorance that they're guilty of? And I think it's the ignorance of saying that these Christians who owe their first allegiance to God and not to Caesar are somehow going to hurt the Roman Empire. Because that's what they believed. That when, because if you don't worship Caesar, then you mess up the whole way the world works. And the gods are going to be unhappy, and, the, and the everything, the crops are going to fail. We're going to be, everything becomes chaos because you don't worship the way we're supposed to worship. And that means worshiping Caesar. And in, through him, the rest of the gods. So the Roman Empire, Nero was guilty of this, believed that when things go badly, it is because there are people in society that are not doing what they're supposed to do, worship-wise. And so he pointed the finger of blame at the Christians and at the Jews and slaughtered them wholesale. That is ignorance. That is the definition of ignorance. To think that a Christian is the problem in society. Jesus says we are the salt 
in light of this world. This earth needs us. In the day that the Lord takes us all home, when he comes in the air and snatches us to be himself, to, to be with himself, do you really want to be around when we're all gone? Think how bad that's going to be. We are the salt of the earth. That is a, pre, a preserving influence. And when we're gone, it's going to be bad. But the world doesn't recognize that because it's ignorant. Ignorance is believing that because Christians are not in keeping with culture, that they are the enemy of the culture. You see, this is again because we're to be distinct. And so it was, it's, it's not unreasonable to see the thinking here. Now, when you've got people say, we're not as distinct as, uh, you know, just, just an outward, but think about the Amish. You know, and, and are, are they the problem of society in Pennsylvania? We go, no. We'd like to have more people like them. But there are people, I guarantee, in Pennsylvania who think the Amish are a problem. And you go, how could you think that? It's ignorance. And more and more, there are people in our American society who think Christians are the problem in this world. It is ignorance. We silence the ignorance, not by rebelling against our government, but by submitting to our government. We can still be different than society while being in submission to our government. And it silences the ignorance of foolish people. The folly is the folly of thinking that Christians who serve God first will by nature undermine the very institutions that God allowed to be raised up. Romans 13 says there is no authority except from God. And it is folly to think that Christians who serve God would be inherently opposed to government. It is we who should be the most quick to obey because we are the ones that recognize no authority exists except it came from God. And our first disposition is submission. And I believe what Peter is just simply saying is, most people are not going to get it. Because they're going to think that when you are different from culture, you are counter, you are against culture. And we're not against the culture. People are going to think that when your first allegiance is to God, that you will have no allegiance to government. And that's not the case. You ever wondered why in many churches they have a Christian flag and the American flag up on the, on the, on the podium, on the platform? See, that troubles a lot of Christians today. We go, get rid of the American flag. We our allegiance is not to the flag. And more and more, even, even Christians are going, why would you give a pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States. But it's been Christians historically that have wanted that. We want the American flag on our, on our platform. We want our children to learn the Pledge of Allegiance in school because we don't see a contradiction between being submissive to God and being submissive to government, of having an allegiance to God and having an allegiance to government because God established these authorities and we are for them. 
And we don't pray against our government leaders, we pray for our government leaders and for all those who are in authority. We don't pray God will strike them down dead. We pray that the Lord would bring them to himself. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. We are free. Government is not our master. Government is not our God. It's not our Lord. But that doesn't mean we should just do whatever we want and ignore government. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. The evil of not being submitted. The evil of rebellion. But use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Honor all men. Give them the respect that their office deserves. Give them the respect that they deserve as a person created in the image of God. Honor all men. We don't curse men. We don't disdain men. We honor men. And even when we disagree with them, and we can disagree passionately, we should do so in a way that is honoring and not dishonoring. Love the brotherhood. Christians, love them all. Fear God. We don't hear much about that anymore. The fear of God. If we truly believed that God is absolutely sovereign, watching over everything that we do, and that He is a holy God, and He judges unrighteousness, there would be very little unrighteousness. It's made me, of everything in this passage, nothing has, has stopped me and made me do some self-examination more than that statement, fear God. Do I fear God? It's a question we all need to ask because it begins with us. How can we expect the world to fear God when those who profess faith in Jesus Christ show no evidence of the fear of God? Jesus came into this world the first time to demonstrate the love of the Father. He will come the next time to demonstrate the wrath of the Father. Fear God. When Abraham in Genesis chapter 20 lied and said that Sarah was his sister, half a truth, a whole lie, he justified himself, explained himself by saying, Surely there is no fear of God in this place. So he He sacrifices his wife because he thought there was no fear of God, acting totally in his own self-interest. But then two chapters later, God is saying, I want you to offer up your son, Isaac. 
he offered up his wife to preserve his own life. And now God's saying, offer up your son. And he does. And the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Very similar circumstances, very different at the same time. But in both cases, the fear of God enters in. I believe that what we're being told is that if Abraham had feared God, he would not have feared man. And he would not have offered up his wife to keep himself alive. Because it's not about whether there's fear of God in the land. It's about whether you and I fear God. When we fear God, that's all that matters. We won't fear man. And when Abraham began to fear God, then he would be obedient even to the giving up of his son. I'm going to read some verses. I know we're going long. I haven't heard the bell yet. But just think about these verses on the fear of God. From Job, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. From the Psalms, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now we're in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but, le- but live in the fear of the Lord always. Oh, fear the Lord, you who saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And from Ecclesiastes, the the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. Fear God. And honor the king. I had one of the men one Sunday said, you know, I've never done this before, but I need to correct you. And he says, I don't like it that you referred to our president, Obama, at the time, just by his last name, Obama. That is not honoring. I had to agree. He was President Obama. And with his military background, he found it offensive that I had dishonored the king, the president. Honor the king. God put him in place. And really, it all comes down to acknowledging that God is sovereign, 
that his very nature is not a nature of rebellion. And if he's going to be reflected in us, we will submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. And we will live in the fear of God. Because God punishes the evildoer. And rebellion is most of the time evil. I'll close with some prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for your life, that you are holy and righteous, true and good in all that you do. And there is no rebellion in you. And Lord, we know that what you're calling us to is supernatural. Our nature, apart from you, is one of rebellion. But we don't want to live, Lord, by what is natural, but what is unnatural to our fallen nature and true to yours. That the miracle of your redemption would be seen in us. And that the silence of ignorant, foolish people all around us that the ignorance and folly of people around us would be silenced because we live in submission to you. That we would not be accused of evil, of insurrection, of plotting and scheming, of conspiracy. But when people think of a Christian, they think of one who is for and not against their government as instituted by God. I pray, God, that, again, we would just be so yielded to you that what is true of your heart would govern us in all of our thoughts and actions and words, especially concerning those who are in authority over us. In Jesus' name, amen.